Our Father in heaven, I ask as we talk about the scene of the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5, that you would inspire us with thoughts about what is true and what is best. I thank you, and I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We're going to begin looking in verse 1. Revelation 4 and 5 is an introduction to what are called the seven seals. The seven seals are found in Revelation 6 and in Revelation 8 verse 1 with kind of an interlude in chapter 7. So if I could say what we're talking about in this lecture, it's a section of the Bible that goes from Revelation 4 verse 1 to Revelation 8 verse 1. Today we're focusing on Revelation 4 and 5, and on an overview of the entire section, and we'll begin by looking at Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And the Bible says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. This door gives you an idea of where you are in heaven. There is a place in heaven that is spoken of as having doors. What place is that? Why, it's the heavenly sanctuary. And as we go further on in this chapter, we find unmistakable evidence that we're in the sanctuary. In fact, the sanctuary is a very common element in the book of Revelation. You find references to it in this prophecy, well, in Revelation 4, 5, and Revelation 6, and Revelation 8, and Revelation, I guess we'll find them as we go on, all through the book. Verse 2, and immediately I was in the Spirit. Well, we need to notice the end of verse 1. In the end of verse 1 it says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither. I will show these things which must be hereafter. Let me just ask you a question. Is Revelation 4 a picture of the time of Christ's ascension into the heavenly sanctuary? It's not. Because how is it introduced to John about A.D. 90-something or 100? That's right. That here is a picture of things that are going to be later. Verse 3. And he, sorry, in verse 2, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. Now, is there a place in the Bible where we find a throne being set in heaven? Well, that's in Daniel 7, isn't it? Thrones are set. And when that happens there, it's the beginning of the judgment. And one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now here we have an interesting and somewhat complex picture. 
First of all, we're in the sanctuary. And now we see seven lamps burning before the throne. Which room of the sanctuary had seven lamps burning before the throne? That's the holy place. So when we read that thrones are set, it must, in Daniel 7, mean more like that the thrones moved and now they're established. And not only can they be established in the most holy place, but does God have a throne in the holy place? Certainly God can have a throne in the holy place established there. That's why his throne has wheels. It can move and it can be established. This verse 5 is very interesting. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Why is this interesting? Because what we see here in 4 verse 5, we find again in Revelation 8, it's somewhere around verse 5-ish, we find it again in Revelation 11, it's around verse 19-ish, we find it again in Revelation 16. It's in the seventh plague. And each time this element comes up, a little bit of information is added to it. Maybe we should just look at it so you can just see what I'm talking about. So let's observe carefully what's here in 4.5. It says, There were lightnings and thunderings and voices. Now turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, and we're looking at verse 5. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. Here's a sanctuary picture and a similar thing going on. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings. And what is added here? An earthquake. Now let's go to chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple. Now, did we find anything opening in Revelation 4? We found a door opening in Revelation 4, didn't we? And here we find the temple opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and, and what does it say? We're used to that. And what else is added here? Great hail. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16. And here we'll have to begin reading in verse 18. This is the seventh plague as it's happening. Actually, let's start in verse 17 so you can see it. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the, what does it say? Out of the temple from the throne, saying, this is the temple of heaven. So where is God's throne when the plagues are going on? Yeah, it's very clear, isn't it? God's throne is in the temple in heaven when the, plagues are, the seventh plague goes on. And that great voice says, it is done. It says, and there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Well, this is what we're used to, but our question is, where is this hail? Verse 19, and the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine and the fierceness of his wrath, 
and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague of the hail was exceeding great. If I could just summarize the point I'm making from these passages. I'm certain in my own heart that I'm right here and here and here, and I think I'm right here. But I reserve the right to be mistaken about Revelation 4. And here I go to tell you what I think. That these phrases are describing that something that happens after the close of human probation, just before Christ's second coming, something that happens in heaven related to something that happens on earth. Where does the voice come from? It comes from heaven. Thunders and lightnings proceed from there. What's going on on earth at the same time? There's a great earthquake and there is great hail. Babylon is coming in remembrance before God. And these connected sayings help us to time some things. They help us to know when this scepter is thrown down. They help us know what's going on in the seventh trumpet. They help us connect these things with the seventh plague. And, and if anyone is listening to this and thinking, oh no, a futurist is teaching, just keep listening. I'm as, as historicist as a historicist can come. So this sort of begs the question, which may not even be the most important question in Revelation 4 and 5, but a question is, when does this happen? Let me just remind you of some things you already know. If we have here the sanctuary service, Jesus, we understand, is in the holy place from the time of his ascension until A.D. 1844. That's where he is right now, in the most holy place. I mean, since then, he's been here. Is this where Jesus stays until the day that he comes back to earth? No. When human probation closes, where does Jesus go? When probation closes? When probation closes, where does he go? The Holy You know, he's in the Holy of Holies when probation closes, but when probation closes, he enters the holy place again, and here in the type, he puts on what are called the garments of vengeance. This is where Jesus is while the seven plagues are falling on earth in the holy place. So many Adventist commentators have read Revelation 4 and 5 as if it's a description of 1844 or just prior to the beginning of the investigative judgment. And that's how they've harmonized the fact that Jesus is in the holy place with the fact that the I'm not sure they're wrong. I just think they are. Can you understand how I can teach something about being sure I'm right? I'm going to go on and give you the more evidence that I know, and we'll go from there. What happens in Revelation 4 and 5? What happens in Revelation 4 and 5 is that there is a book sealed with seven seals. And the question is, who is able to open this book? The answer is that no man has been found on heaven or earth. Are there men in heaven right now? You know there are men in heaven. But no men in heaven have been found worthy to open the book, and no man on earth have been able to open the book. And this is very distressing 
almost oddly distressing to the Apostle John. What does he do when he finds no one is able to open the book? He weeps. Then he's told, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has been found worthy to open the book. Now, do you understand why the pioneers have put this at the judgment? Because there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels here. Where else do we find that? In the judgment. We have Jesus here. Where else do we find Jesus? In the judgment. And we have here Jesus opening books. Where else do we find that? So there really is quite a bit of evidence on the side of calling this a judgment scene. I don't want to belittle it at all. I only want to indicate to you that it's men who are found unworthy to open this book and to read it. And when do men first get a picture at the books of record? When, do they first, when are they first confronted with what's in the books? You know, for the saints, it's during the thousand years, and for the lost, it's just before then, for those that are alive here on earth when Christ comes back. Yeah, it's really just after the seven last plagues are finished. That's interesting to me. It doesn't solve the issue. But there's something more. From Christ's Object Lessons, page 294. If some of you have your computers and you can just look things up right away, yes? Well, doesn't you might apply in Revelation 11, 19 exactly to the time period you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. Listen, I'm sure I'm right about Revelation 11 and Revelation 16 and Revelation 8. It's Revelation 4. Well, the way she's applying it, it makes sense what you're saying. Oh, yeah. I, I do believe what I'm saying. I do. Christ's Otter's Lessons, page 294. You're looking for the paragraph that says... Um, Ah, let me just tell you which paragraph, because I forgot which word started. It's the, one of the shorter ones. The Jewish people. Would you read us the paragraph that says the Jewish people? The Jewish people cherish the idea that they were the favorites of heaven, and that they were always to be exalted as the church of God. They were the children of Abraham, they declared, and so firm did the foundation of their prosperity seem to them that they defied the earth, or that they divide earth and heaven to dispossess them of their rights. But by lives one thing, they were preparing for the condemnation of heaven and for separation from God. And then the next paragraph. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry, it's the paragraph before that. Thus the Jewish leaders, not the Jewish people. I'll read it to you. Thus the Jewish leaders made their choice. Their decision was registered in the book which John saw in the hand of him that sat upon the throne. The book which no man could open. And that's interesting. So, does this book have a record of sins? You know, it most certainly does. And I would be thinking, okay, so this book must be open for the judgment. But listen to what it says. The book which no man could open, in all its vindictiveness, this decision will appear before them in the day when this book is unsealed by the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Do we know from elsewhere in the Bible when that decision will appear before them in all its vindictiveness? Yeah, and they also which pierced him. And hereafter shall you see the Son of Man descending in the clouds of glory. What's in this book? From another statement that's in the manuscript releases, you probably could find it if you tried, if you typed in uh, 
rev four in quote marks. I don't know how you'd find it. Um, let's try and find a reference for you. What's that um, Lion of the tribe of Judah is probably in it. Um, oh, the book sealed. Eventful history is a key phrase that might pull it up better than any other. Say that again. Eventful history. I printed it. Can I? Can I dig it out? Is it? Is it? Release it. Yeah. You release that paragraph. All that God, all that God has in prophetic history specified to be fulfilled in the past has been, and all that is yet to come in its order will be. Daniel, God's prophet, stands in his place. John stands in his place. In the Revelation, the line of the tribe of Judah has opened to the students of prophecy the book of Daniel. And thus is Daniel standing in his place. He bears his testimony. That was the Lord revealed to him in vision of the great Solomon. You must know that that's the great of that, That's a great statement. That's, that's about... I'll find it. Just give me a moment. You're on 1237. Okay, I'm in 12th manuscript releases, page 296. And I'll read it to you here. It says... There in his hand, it's Quinn Revelation 5, 1 to 3. There in his hand lay the book, the role of the history of God's providences, the prophetic history of nations and the church. Herein was contained the divine utterances, his authority as God's, his commandments, his laws, the whole symbolic counsel of the eternal, and the history of all ruling powers in the nations. In symbolic language was contained in that role the influence of every nation, tongue, and people from the beginning of Earth's history to its close. This role was written within and without, John says. I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. The vision as presented to John made its impression upon his mind. The destiny of every nation was contained in that book. John was distressed at the utter inability of any human being or angelic intelligence to read the words or even to look thereon. His soul was wrought up to such a point of agony and suspense that one of the strong angels had compassion on him and laying his hand on him assuringly said, Weep not, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. It goes on to say that as the seals were opened, there were no blank spots. There was no more place for writing. I'll give you a picture of what I understand from putting all these and a few other things together. What is this book? It looks to me like long ago that God, the Father, wrote who would be lost and who would be saved what men would do and how they would do it. 
what was going to happen in every detail of the great controversy from beginning to end in relation to man and that it's never been shown to anyone it hasn't been shown yet but it's going to be shown and what will be shown in the end is that God knew exactly what he was doing where things were tending where they were going this is the closest you will get to speculation during the class called Revelation and I encourage you to study it yourself before you take it very seriously. But what can you know for certain from the inspired messages? You can know that in this book are the sins of the Jewish leaders. You can know the book is unsealed at Christ's second coming. You can know that the book contains all of the eternal counsel of, the, of God in symbolic language, beginning from the beginning of earth's history, even to its close, and that it has the destiny of all inside of it. And that John knew that. I just paraphrased the quote we just read. If I spend any more time on this, I'll violate my own counsel about spending more time on the unclear things and on the clear things. So we're dropping this book and moving on. Revelation chapter 4. We are now in verse 3. And he that sat on the throne, that is, was to look upon it like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So God, who could have anything he wants around his throne. What does he have around his throne? He has a rainbow there. Of course, the rainbow is a meaningful symbol to us. It indicates that God is faithful to preserve his faithful when he destroys the rest. His promise not to destroy the earth again by a flood, even if they deserve it. Jesus has that rainbow there to point to when he's urging his petitions before the Father. Verse 4, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders. It has been another issue of great speculation about who are these four and twenty elders. Um, look at chapter 5 and verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. That's interesting, isn't it? That these men seem to have something to do with the prayers of saints, and they have those vials. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain, and you have redeemed, what does it say? You have redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So are the 24 elders, angels, unfallen beings, or humans? Humans. It seems very clear to me that they're humans. 
So who are humans that we know are in heaven? That's right. At Christ's um, ascension, there were beings that were taken up. Their graves opened when he died. They came out when he was resurrected. They witnessed all over. I believe they ascended when he ascended. Anyone else is in heaven? Okay, Enoch and Elijah and Moses, people that we know. It looks like, if I read them correctly, that these saints don't claim to all be from the same race, or even all claim to be Jews. Yeah, so there we have evidence that they come from different time frames prior to Christ's death. Here we have evidence that they come from different ethnic backgrounds. Where would I find that quote? So what's the significance of these men being mentioned? They're mentioned several places in Revelation. There are trophies in heaven as evidence of the efficacy of Christ's blood. If you ever get a gut feeling that you wonder if the gospel really can work for people when they're so corrupt and low and failing, there is some empirical evidence that it already has worked. There are already people who have made it. And that ought to be encouraging. Verse 6 is just a little more evidence that we're in the sanctuary. And before the throne there was a sea of glass likened to crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. These four beasts, they seem to be a metaphor. I don't mean that they are not literal. They seem to be drawn from the imagery of Ezekiel. If I knew a lot about them, I would spend some time telling you about them. I have read the speculations of many others about them. Interesting speculations range from the fact that the children of Israel were divided up into four groups under four banners, three tribes per banner, and that these four banners had these same four images on them. Others have talked about the different characteristics of Jesus as illustrated by these entities. Anyway, I don't know, so I'm going on. I do know some things that they say, verse 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 God, Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Is the coming important to the four beasts? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm twisting what they're saying there. It might not mean that he is to come to earth. It might just mean that he is to continue existing. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever... 
the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying you are worthy O Lord to receive glory and honor and power for you has created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created I think we sing Revelation 4.11 a lot we always take it out of its acted context that is in the Bible it was said by people prostrated to the ground in worship chapter 5 verse 1 and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals this book if men are not dependent on the spirit of prophecy to know what the book is there should be something else in the Bible about it does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? it should be keep a finger here and look at Ezekiel chapter 2 Ezekiel chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 9 and 10. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written, what does it say? Within and without. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. Now, turn back to Revelation 5, where we just were. What do we notice about this book? Yeah, it's written within and without. It's, what did the book have in it in Ezekiel? Lamentations, mourning, and woe. Now, there's another thing in the Old Testament written within and the backside. It's a flying scroll. You might remember it when you're reading through those interesting metaphors in the Minor Prophets. And it has written on it the Ten Commandments on one side or on that side of the thing. When I put it all together, I get a picture of a book that describes God's judgments against the breakers of His commandments. Which looks very much in harmony with what we find in the 12th volume of the manuscript releases in Christ's Office Lessons. When does a book like that need to be opened? You know, it needs to be opened when Jesus is ready to convince all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which ungodly sinners have committed against him. When he's going to separate the sheep from the goats when he's going to execute against them the judgment written. Yeah, it's for the millennial judgment and for the post-millennial judgment and for the judgment when he comes back. In all these cases, this information needs to be available. If you're looking for the statements by Ellen White quoting this chapter, you'll find she refers to this chapter many times and never hardly once to any of the topics we've talked about. She talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that was slain. 
To whom does Jesus appear as a lion? It's to the rejecters of his grace. To whom does he appear as a lamb? To the acceptors of his grace. But the metaphors used here to name Jesus are interesting. The lion and the root of David and the lamb. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. No, it's not Deuteronomy, it's Genesis. Genesis, I believe it's chapter 49. This is where the lion of the tribe of Judah is first mentioned. Verse 9, you said? Verse 9. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you are gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall be the gap unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Let's just take apart this promise made to Judah. First of all, the lion represents what kind of position? That's right, it's the king. Even today we call the lion the king of the beast. Here we have the scepter is not going to depart from Judah. There's going to be a king over Judah. Shiloh is going to come, the Messiah is going to come as the king of Judah. But who else is, is the king of Judah? He's a lawgiver. And what does Shiloh do in this passage? You know, he's the, the center point for the gathering of the people. Jesus talking more about his position as a lamb that was slain said, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Shiloh and the lion of the tribe of Judah are these two traits of Jesus. He's the king, he's the lawgiver, so he's the judge. But he is the one who attracts all people to himself. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. We're looking at verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Who's Jesse? That's the father of David which shall stand for an ensign of the people. What's an ensign? It's a gathering mark. It's the place where people come together. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. Verse 12, And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcast of Israel. And shall gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners 
of the earth. Who is Jesus in Revelation 5? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb as it has been slain. In every case, he's the gathering point for the faithful. In every case, he is the one that is the collection of beauty. And yet, he's the lawgiver, he's the judge. We've talked already in an earlier lecture about how he's honored in that chapter as the creator and as the redeemer. Well, chapter 4 is the creator, chapter 5 is the redeemer, how he's worthy. In the last 10 minutes, I want to talk about something else. Why is it that we have the picture of the seven seals, a prophecy about the church, when in Revelation 2 and 3 we have a prophecy about the church covering the very same age? Why two prophecies about the churches? I mean, they're so parallel. Ephesus, that beautiful church that had fallen in one respect, is represented as the white horse with Jesus riding. What color is the second horse? That's red, just like the bloody Smyrna who was suffering. You have Pergamos, which is becoming corrupt because of the work of Balaam and figure, Constantine literally. Then you have the church being controlled really by death rather than Jesus. Why the second picture? Do you remember, how many of you were in Daniel class last semester? Okay, so it's only half. So last semester we talked about an important principle from the story of Joseph. Here Joseph is a man that has six dreams. His dreams are so interesting because even though, well, he doesn't have six dreams, excuse me, he interprets six dreams. He has two of them. The dreams he interprets are so interesting because they all come in pairs. That is, he has two dreams initially, and the first two dreams, one of them has to do with food, and the food bows down to him. And then the other dream has to do with sun, moon, and stars. The, and they represent the family patriarchal government bowing down to him. And then we come to the experience with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has two dreams. One is the dream of the corn. And what happens to the corn? Bad ears eat the good ears. Then we have the dream of the cows. What happens to the cows? The bad, sickly cows eat up the good, healthy cows. And you know, it, Joseph did not neglect an opportunity to explain to Mr. Farrell why the dream was given twice. Let's find that. Turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis, and I'll find you the reference in just a moment. Thirty-two. Forty-one, thirty-two. That's exactly it. 
Genesis 41, verse 32. And for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice, it is because the thing is, what does it say? Established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Two things were indicated by its repetition. One is that it was going to begin fulfillment right away, and the other is that it was not a conditional prophecy. Does history prove that it wasn't a conditional prophecy? Didn't Pharaoh do all the right things to avert it? He did all the right things and it came anyway. Why the two different subject matters? Why not just give the exact same dream twice? The two different sets of figures emphasize different aspects of the same truth. There would be a famine that affected the livestock. There would be a famine that affected the grains. Do we see the same kind of thing in the book of Daniel? So we find the very same information presented in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. But it's under different figures. The figures in Daniel 7, what do they, what do they emphasize? The conquering of one nation over another. What do the figures in Daniel 8 emphasize? Sanctuary, sanctuary, sanctuary. All the figures are about the sanctuary. They show that Daniel 7 is primarily referring to kingdoms. Daniel 8 is primarily referring to the sanctuary. And now we come to Revelation, and we have two pictures of the church, its history throughout ages. We find that these were not conditional prophecies. It was certainly going to be that way. Are there some conditional elements in unconditional prophecies? There are. For example, there would be someone who would betray Jesus. That was an unconditional prophecy. The conditional element was who would betray him. When Christ comes back, there will be goats on one side and sheep on the other. That's an unconditional prophecy. What's the conditional part of it? That's exactly who's going to be sheep and who's going to be goats. In the history of the churches, there was an unconditional element. That's what's revealed in Revelation 2 and 3 and 6. The conditional element is who responds to the warnings and promises and who doesn't. Maybe in, in connection with how we started this lecture, I'll close by talking about the seventh trumpet, excuse me, the seventh seal. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8 and look at verse 1. Revelation 8, and looking at verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And we already talked about when the seventh seal is opened. It's opened in that day when the... the Jewish leaders meet their decision face to face. Where are the inhabitants of heaven for the next seven days? You know, they're just above the surface of the earth and then they're on the way back. How long is a half hour of prophetic time? 
If you're not mathematically inclined, follow this closely. If a day is a year, then 12 hours is six months. Then one month is two hours. Then one hour is about 15 days. And 15 days is about two weeks. Then a half hour is about a week. So why do we have a half hour of silence after the sixth seal? What is the end of the sixth seal? It's Christ's second coming. That's for the pure coin for the rocks to fall on them. The sixth seal ends with Christ's second coming. And, and this is the only prophecy we have of these various lines of prophecy that extends beyond the second coming. It doesn't go very far beyond it. It merely alludes to the fact that we're not going to get to heaven immediately. Yes? So the way to read the Bible better would be start chapter 8 and verse 2. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the reason they put it there is because it doesn't eight one doesn't seem to fit either with eight two or with seven. Yeah, exactly. You didn't want to have a chapter that was one verse long. All right. Um, do you see why I didn't give you a handout on this lecture? Let me see. But there will be a handout on the next one. You are dismissed.